0: Matthew chapter 7 is where we'll be today. If I've kept up correctly the numbering, this is the 37th message since we started this series on the greatest sermon ever preached. Yes, children, if you're prepared and have permission to go to Children's Church, your Church, you may do so now. Thank you for remembering. <clears throat> I'm not going to be able to review. I don't have much time, but it's, it's been a while uh, since we were in this series, five weeks to be exact. So I won't review, but I will try to reorient you just a little bit. For all intents and purposes, when we get into most of chapter 7, Jesus is really done with preaching His sermon. He's done with the exposition and the exhortation, but like every good preacher, he's now applying it. This is the application part. This is the illustration and elaborating and amplifying of his message. So he's saying to his hearers that have been listening, probably many of them on the hillside, will you follow me? in the narrow way? Or will you follow the crowd in the broad way? You can't do both, amen? No man can serve two masters. What are you going to do about it? He says, will you embrace the truth or will you be overawed by false prophets who are inwardly ravenous wolves, but they masquerade, they have, they're in sheep's clothing All you have to do is examine their fruits. What are the fruits of a false prophet? Well, it's twofold. It's both their teaching and it's their lifestyle. So this is application, amplification, illustration, follow-up. And we read in verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many, please underscore that word, not just a few, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils or demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Verse 23, Jesus is talking, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Solemn words, In the same vein as the previous verses, Jesus continues with these three verses. It's a big mistake to separate verse 21 from verses 22 and 23, and yet some have tried to do that. They create a false dichotomy between saying and doing. I would warn you not to do that. This is the way they reason. They say, didn't Jesus say, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my father which is in heaven and so they proceed to build their whole scheme of salvation by works saying that Jesus placed the emphasis on doing and not believing they misuse verse 21 because they separate it from verses 22 and 23 please don't do that it could be said of this matter what it said Jesus said about marriage what God hath joined together let not man put asunder I will say at the outset of the message that these are some of the saddest and most solemn verses in the Bible. They really are. If we understood the true tone of them, we would be alarmed. We have already learned from our Lord in His classic sermon here on the Mount that true believers are in the minority. We have learned that from verses 13 and 14 where He contrasts the broad way and the narrow way. Few there be, relatively few there be on the narrow way. But now Jesus goes a step further in verses 21 through 23, and He states that many who are on that broad way that leads to destruction actually think that they are on the narrow way that leads to heaven. Thus their peace is a false peace. And I will say this more than once today, and I hope you remember it. Satan never assaults the hope of a false believer. Satan never assaults the hope of a false believer, of a hypocrite. And so I hear many people say when I bring up the matter of salvation and press it personally upon them I'm good, preacher. <laughs> Don't worry about me. I'm at peace with my Maker. I'm a hell proof had people say that to me. And I try to respond as kindly as I can, but as solemnly as I can, the fact that you feel that way about yourself is no sign whatsoever that you are on your way to heaven and one of God's children. Our eternal destiny depends upon our understanding what Jesus is saying here. This is pretty heavy stuff. The two points of my outline this morning will borrow language from the courtroom, and you'll see that these three verses should sober us for for two reasons, okay? That's the outline, the two reasons. First of all, insufficient evidences of salvation. In a trial, you're going to have evidences, and you've got to have enough evidence to convict. It has been said, and I think it's relevant to bring it out at this point, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There are certain evidences of salvation. Certain things are true of every genuine child of God. Don't develop a doctrine of eternal security that doesn't take that into consideration. For example, a true child of God will not balk at baptism if they're physically able to submit to this ordinance. It says about those 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost, then they that gladly received His Word, that is Peter's Word, preaching that wonderful Spirit-filled message, all 3,000 that gladly received His Word were baptized. I don't know how long it took to do that, probably a good while. I'm sure there was more than one preacher involved. But 3,000 people got baptized on that day. People that genuinely believe on Christ aren't going to balk at baptism. People who generally believe in Christ and are born again, they love the Word of God. As newborn babes, we're told by Peter, desire the sincere, the unadulterated milk of the Word. Well, we're having a parcel of new babies born around here, and I'm glad for that. Anxious to dedicate some of them, all of them for that matter. And we don't do it all at one time. I know some churches are so big they have to. We try to do it one at a time, unless you have twins or something. We'll do two at a time. But, I, you know, when it comes to these babies, I've learned one thing. I, it wasn't that long ago that I had some of my own. And I remember the grandkids even more recently. When they are hungry, nothing else matters. You can say, do you want a bath? No, they're not interested in that. You want a toy? No, they're not going to spend that. Do you want a cuddle from mama? No, not really. They want that food, and they know the source for it. As newborn babes, we're to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word. It will be natural. If we really love the Lord Jesus Christ and are born of, born of Him, we will love other believers. We know that we have passed from death unto life, Because we love the brethren, that includes the sisters too, okay, that's generic. We will not regard the commandments of God to be burdensome or grievous, but we will delight in them. But did you know something? It's possible to do all those things, to be baptized, to read the Word of God every day, to enjoy Christian company. And other, it's, impo- it's possible to do all those things on the outside without having the real stuff on the inside, that organic connection to Jesus Christ. I've been deceived by artificial flowers sometime. When I come up and see certain flowers on the house the first time, I think they're real and beautiful. Then when I see that they never fade until, you know, eventually the sun gets to them, I know something's artificial they're not organically connected to the soil. Please listen carefully. It is absolutely frightening, certainly amazing to consider how far a man or a woman can go in saying and doing the right things and still be wrong and untrue. We talked about Judas last week, case in point, The reason those warning passages in the book of Hebrews are so misunderstood and there's expositors all over the place on them is because we don't really agree on this. We don't agree on how far an unbeliever can go in acting and looking and talking like a believer. Let's examine the insufficient evidences of salvation that our Lord enumerates here. This Folks, this is not my thoughts. I'm not trying to create a sensation this morning, but if we really understood it in the, t- in the sense in which Jesus spake it, and if we understood His authority, it would shake us. First of all, there's orthodox doctrine. By that I mean correct belief. This is what Jesus means when He says, first of all, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Then he says, first of all, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord. That that caused us to think about other verses. What about uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3? Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And then Paul goes on to say, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Spirit of God. So yes, to call Jesus Lord is necessary. To confess Him as Lord is absolutely necessary for salvation. Thus, orthodoxy, correct belief, correct system of theology is absolutely essential to salvation. doesn't mean that you have to know all the doctrines, but you have to be right about Jesus and and about salvation by grace and not works. If a man does not believe that Jesus is God over all, he cannot be saved no matter how pious and generous he may be. He does not have the Holy Spirit. And and Paul said, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. We make a big deal about doctrine around here, about correct teaching, orthodoxy. But listen carefully. Though orthodoxy is absolutely necessary, it is not sufficient Necessary but not sufficient. If one relies only upon his sound doctrine, he may yet be damned. If that sound doctrine that he claims to believe doesn't make him sound, he's in trouble. One can make an open profession of faith in Jesus as Lord, he can identify with his disciples, with other believers and yet be deceived into a false security. We see this borne out by other parts of the Word of God. Jesus and the other inspired writers are in agreement here. I think of James in his little epistle, A Practical Christian Truth in Practice. James says in chapter 2, verse 19 of his epistle, He said, You believe that there is one God, thou doest well. He said, The demons also believe and tremble, which is more than a lot of Christians do. Certainly a lot more than other professors do. Are the demons true believers? Are the demons going to be admitted to heaven? Wait a minute. Jesus encountered demons in His day, and they recognized Him, and they acknowledged who He was. You're the Holy One of God, but they're not going to be in heaven. It requires a faith greater than that of demons, more than mere intellectual assent to be validated by God. And you may recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday and still be lost as a goose in a snowstorm. You may say the Lord's Prayer religiously every day and yet still not know God as your Father. Pastors can preach solid biblical truth every Sunday for years and still yet fail to practice what they preach. And unless the Holy Spirit has driven home the truth of the gospel to your heart and it has changed your life, on the authority of God's Word, I tell you, you are still in your sins. You may profess, but you do not possess. You may get all teary and sentimental about things, doesn't mean you're saved unless there's something changed on the inside one day you will hear christ say i never knew you solemn truth and that's why here at friendship though we love to have visitors like such as we have today we want to see the church grow we're not ready to see the church grow at any price We take very solemnly our responsibility to guard the entrance to church membership against those who profess but do not possess. We don't just baptize anybody. They have to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, just like John the Baptist said before he would baptize people. I mean, people were flocking to this fellow. He was creating quite a sensation out there in the wilderness, not just because of the way he looked, and he looked pretty rough, but because of his powerful preaching, publicans were convicted. At least they were Im- impacted. They came out and said, what shall we do? And before he would baptize them, he said, well, you need to exact no more than what is appointed of you. Good night. That t- as I said recently, that took all the fun out of being a publican, tax collector. They were only in the business because they could skim off the top more than they were entitled to. The soldiers, they were a rough lot, but they came and they said, John the Baptist, what shall we do? And he said, Be content with your wages, do violence to no man. Wow, that was counterintuitive to being a soldier back then. Bring forth fruits fitting for repentance. We are to guard the church door not about it from anybody who wants to come and hear the Word of God. But Jesus said what, to the church, to the apostles, the foundation church, what's, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The reason we've got a mess in evangelical America today is we're trying to pacify and placate people who've never been born again, but their names are on a church roll. You get off on that kick and you won't be able to get off. You get on it, you won't be able to get off of it. If people come because of the Word of God, that's all it will take to keep them coming. You don't have to put on a show. You don't have to serve a meal every time you come together. Nothing wrong with doing that, but you don't have to do it. orthodoxy, correct doctrine. But then the secondly, Jesus talked about zealous service. In verse 22, He goes on to specify not only correct beliefs, but this fervent, zealous service. I think this is hinted at by the way they address Him twice, He says it in verse 21 and 22, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. There's some feeling there. Emotion was involved. Right off the bat, we're forewarned that great enthusiasm does not necessarily mean great spirituality. Some people, by virtue of their temperament, just their natural disposition, they're gung-ho about anything they do. And yet, it may be nothing but the flesh when it comes right down to it. When you hear that compound address, Lord, Lord, what what verse do you think of? You may not remember the reference, but Luke 6, 46, where Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? The truth is, we can be as busy as beavers doing what we think God needs us to do, and completely miss doing the will of the Father that Jesus mentioned at the end of verse 21. We are driven by the impulses of the flesh we do not wait upon God. We, do, we are not constrained by the love of Christ to do what we do. 1 Corinthians 13 is a wonderful chapter. It doesn't just describe what love really consists of, it also warns us that if we don't have that, we're in trouble. Paul said in the opening verse there, he said, he went so far as to say, if we give our body to be burned for Christ's sake in his service, but we don't have love, we are nothing. I'll illustrate as I go along with these specific areas of service that Jesus lists here. I am an expository preacher. It's not just verse by verse, it's phrase by phrase. We've got to do that here. First thing he mentions is preaching. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? To prophesy generally means to deliver a spiritual message. Yes, there is a difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy in some ways. The spiritual sign gift of prophecy was certainly changed when the canon of Scripture was complete. But generally speaking, to prophesy means to deliver a spiritual message. And these who did it here did it in the name of Jesus, not in their own name. It wasn't something they fabricated themselves we know that Judas did this. He went out with the 12. We mentioned it last Sunday when we observed the Lord's table after the message on Judas. He went out with the 12 on a short-term mission trip. He probably went was numbered among the 70 who also went out and did something similar. But we have examples in the Old Testament, not just Judas in the New Testament, of preachers who spoke the truth, but they were false or fleshly. They're somewhat Enigmas to us. Take Balaam, uh, the story is given in, in Numbers. What Balaam said every time he opened his mouth was spot on. But he was a hireling prophet, he was a reprobate. Take King Saul. The spirit of prophecy came on him from time to time. And on one occasion, uh, they, it was so heavy on him, they, the people themselves said, Is not Saul among the prophets? Others were impressed with him. We've probably had preachers right from this pulpit that you've been impressed with, but they were fleshly people. Sometimes a preacher can speak the truth but be carried away by his own eloquence. I grew up listening to a preacher scores of times that I was absolutely spellbound by. He could have you laughing one minute and crying the next. I didn't know any better so I thought he was a great spirit filled man of God. And then I got away from it for a while when I went to the Cayman Islands and kind of got studying some things away from the influence of certain segments of fundamentalism. When I heard this man the next time, I heard him actually talk about his generosity and his goodness and get teary talking about it. And I thought, wow, is this Christ like humility? That man has already gone on. I hope he's in heaven. You know, a preacher can preach to attract souls to himself and not to Christ. And I appreciate men that just preach and leave the results with God and are humble servants of the Lord. Did you know the Apostle Paul was not a flashy preacher? His readers in the church at Corinth, some of whom he led to Christ, He was there for 18 months, laid the foundation of the gospel. But then when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had to correct them because they had become so infatuated with some Johnny-come-latelys that followed him, and they were emphasizing spiritual gifts. And they were undermining the authority and the influence of the apostle Paul, and they were circulating rumors that he was not a flashy preacher. Oh, he was a great writer. I mean, he had a way with words but his bodily speech was contemptible, his presence was weak. If people were prone to do that back then, do you think we have people today that are prone to be impressed with rock star preachers and despise the humble, faithful men of God? At the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be shocked and who walks away with the rewards. And that's why Paul said, the great man of God that he was, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I keep under my body. I discipline myself. I bring it into subjection. Literally he said, I pummel my body till it's black and blue. That's the idea in the Greek. Why? Lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. We talked about that recently. Adokimos, disapproved, reprobate, reject. Don't minimize the severity of that term. Paul was saying, I don't want to get in the flesh whether I'm in the pulpit or out. That's what he was concerned about far more than just what people said about his sermon. Preaching Let's make sure we have the right criteria for gauging the effectiveness of a preacher. Second thing Jesus mentions is exorcism. Lord, Lord, have we not only prophesied in thy name, but in thy name have cast out devils or demons. Now this emphasizes not only zeal, but a remarkable degree of success in the ministry. It's a pretty spectacular success to be able to cast out a demon. Anybody cast out a demon since last Sunday? That's what I thought. Judas did. Yeah. But dear brother and sister, if you and I could be able to exercise demons from people and yet the devil is not cast out of us, what an awful plight to be in at last. That's exactly what's in view here. Would you turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke's gospel chapter 10, verse 17 through 20. Seventy disciples have gone out on their, I call it, short-term missions trip. We kind of understand that. And they come back all breathless with excitement to report to Jesus And notice what they say in verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils, the demons are subject unto us through thy name. They thought Jesus would share in their euphoria that he would be excited with them, that he would praise them. But he didn't. Instead, he rained on their parade and he brought them crashing back down to earth as he replied, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. That's nothing, guys. And then he said, I'm going to give you power over the enemy. Then he said, nevertheless, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Oh, what meaning that gives to our text back in Matthew chapter 7. Let's face it, if we were to see a man casting out demons here in Raleigh, North Carolina, we would no doubt say to ourselves, boy, I wish I was as sure of my salvation as he is. And yet he could bring 10,000 souls to Christ and never come to Christ himself. And here at the last, those awful words, I never knew you. This is heavy stuff, folks. We're not done. Orthodox doctrine, teaching, preaching, casting out demons, miracle working is the third. The last claim of zealous service in verse 22 is the most spectacular of all. And in thy name, there it is again, thy name, not in their own name, in thy name, done many wonderful works. I mean, he's talking about amazing things, powerful things, miraculous works. I would encompass the so-called faith healers of our day, as well as the out-and-out spiritists, the fortune tellers and the palm readers that can do a little hocus-pocus and deceive people and get their devotees and have people eating out of their hand. When we're impressed with miracles, we're in trouble. We're ignorant of the Scriptures. The magicians in Egypt that are named in the New Testament, Janus and Jambres, at least they're the principal ones, they were able to counterfeit the miracles of Moses and Aaron up to a point. And that's why Pharaoh's heart was hardened and wouldn't let the people go. And miracles by frauds today have hardened the hearts of many people to the truth. But pardon my English or lack thereof, we ain't seen nothing yet. In the end times, our Lord said in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 24, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The worst of the apostasy hasn't happened, folks. Paul would add his amen to what Jesus said as he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, And then shall that wicked, the Antichrist, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. We better be careful about being swayed by miracles and miracle workers Did you know that the natural man can simulate the gifts of the Holy Spirit to a far greater degree than most of us realize? Again, the warning passages of Hebrews address this. I solemnly declare to you, do not emulate gifts. Emulate grace. Because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and angels are powerful creatures, more powerful than you or, or I. All it took was one angel back in the Old Testament to kill 185,000 men of war, just one. And Satan is transformed into an angel. He's pretty powerful. But I would rather be John the Baptist than an angel because two years after John had been martyred They were still talking about him, and they weren't saying what wonderful works he did. Oh, no, not at all. According to John 10, 41, this is what they said, John did no miracle, none. But all things that John spake concerning this man, the Messiah of whom he was the forerunner, everything he said about this man was true two years after he was gone that's who I want to be like. I want to speak the truth about Jesus so that I don't hear those awful words, I never knew you. Forget the fanfare. Forget the hoopla. Forget the shock and awe. Just tell the truth about Christ. We're so overawed by spectacular guys. Please notice it was a sustained ministry. This sense is certainly conveyed in verse 22. It's not outright stated. We go back to our text there, Matthew chapter 7. They'll be doing all these things in Jesus' name. They do it for a long time. They're not just flashing the pans. They don't necessarily... After a short time in the ministry, go back to scandalous lifestyles or deconstruct or deconvert, like we've heard of people doing in recent years—Josh Harris and Marty Sampson and others. No, the implication is here: they kept it up for a long time. Evidently, they—they were not silenced by people. The men who cast out demons weren't stopped. They kept on doing it. They declared it even to Christ at the last day. If they'd stopped, they would have been discredited. They wouldn't be able to say that. The man who preached perhaps to packed stadiums just kept on preaching. Nobody stuck their finger under his nose and said, you're living a lie. Everybody knows it. Nobody's going to come listen to you anymore. Even Christ himself did not disown these people during their lifetime, just like he didn't expose Judas while he was alive. He bears long with them. The first time they hear the words, I never knew you, is when they stand before him in judgment. That's the first time they hear that. That's equivalent to Christ saying. What right had you to preach in my name? I never chose you. I never called you. You ran, but you were never sent. You've been an imposter from day one until now. Folks, it's a solemn matter. Longevity of ministry is no test of authenticity in itself. Well, it gets even heavier. There's the shocking verdict of the judge in verse 23. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Who's talking, folks? Tell me. Who will be the judge at the last day? Jesus. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one whose eyes are as a flame of fire, whose head and hairs are white as wool, as white as snow, whose feet are as burnished brass, whose voice is the sound of many waters. This is not the little cuddly baby in the manger. They were prophesying in his name. They were casting out wicked and hurtful demons in his name. They were doing many wonderful works in Jesus' name, works of benevolence, works of healing, no doubt works of justice, works of philanthropy. But Jesus called that, did you catch this? Iniquity, lawlessness. Let's take away two things and then we'll be done. It's almost 12 o'clock. I can see it on the back. I see here an argument for eternal salvation. Please notice what Christ did not say. He did not say, I knew you once, but you fell away. Isn't that amazing? He said, I never knew you. I never knew you. The consistent truth of Scripture is, are you listening this morning? If you have ever known or been known of God in a sense of a covenant relationship, you will never be unknown by Him. And so the Good Shepherd says in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, wonderful verses, oh I hope you'll go home and read them today. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and here it is, I know them, and they follow me. A stranger they won't follow. It's, it's not that they can, they understand exactly what, where the stranger's wrong, it's just, it's the voice of a stranger it's strange. It's, it, it's not true to their master's voice. It doesn't ring true. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And he states it both positively, I give unto them eternal life, and negatively, they shall never perish, so that we won't miss out on the what he's saying here. Oh, but someone is sure to object. But isn't this teaching dangerous? Isn't it dangerous to just say, just, just believe on Jesus and then you can live like you want to because you're hellproof and once saved, always saved? We encounter that objection a lot, don't we? If somebody talks that way, they are showing that they do not understand the nature of the new birth. Why? Right? Whatsoever is born of God, John said, doth not, says, commit in the King James. Literally means practice sin. Doesn't mean they never sin, because if any man sins, he's a deceiver. The truth is not in him if he he says he doesn't sin. Whosoever is born of God doth not practice sin. Why? Because he has that new seed implanted in him by the Holy Spirit. It may be in microscopic form when he's first saved. There's a lot of growing to do, there's a lot of the flesh to be dispossessed, but that seed is in him. He's a child of God forever. And if he disobeys his father, God will do what any good father does to an errant child. He'll chasten. And he loves us too much to let us have our own way. In fact, one way we know are saved is when we endure that chastening. If you be without chastening, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate and not sons, not true sons, Hebrews 12, 8. Praise the Lord. We can say it without any hesitation, without batting an eye. No one who is ever truly saved can finally be lost. So here's an argument for eternal salvation. Those words, I never knew you. But secondly, there's an argument here for divine choice. When Jesus says, I never knew you, what does he mean? Does he mean that he was not aware of their existence? Does he mean that he was surprised by the way they turned out? Like, you know, I thought I knew you, but evidently I didn't? You know the answer, of course not. He knows all things. He's God. He sees the end from the beginning and He sees everything in between. All things are naked and open to Him with whom we have to do. Nothing we do surprises us or surprises God. Has it ever occurred to you? Nothing ever occurred to God. I think you know that the word know here refers to Christ entering into a special covenant relationship. The Bible says that Adam, Cain, Elkanah, the father of Samuel, knew their wives. He's talking about an intimate marital relationship. When God says to Israel in Amos 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's talking about Israel being a special chosen covenant people. So as we come to the New Testament, the same thing is true of Christ's church. Again, I go to John 10 as we finish up today. That marvelous passage there that reveals Jesus as the good shepherd. He's the one who gives his life for the sheep. That's the sheep of the church. We read in John 10 verse 14, I know my sheep, Jesus said, and am known of mine. Those two go together. He knows us. And so we know Him, whom to know is life eternal, John 17, 3. We love Him because He first loved us. You have not chosen me. No man seeks after God in and of himself. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Beloved, can you think of anything more terrible than to actually hear Christ say, with that voice that is the sound of many waters. I never knew you. You were a stranger to me. We were not friends. You were never a sheep in my fold. You were never a beggar at my gate. You were never a disciple at my feet. I never knew you. Depart from me. You say, preacher, you're trying to work up something here. I wish I could. This is far more alarming than we could imagine. So the question is not so much do you know Jesus, but does He know you? Oh, the awful finality of those words. Imagine the stark terror of those who genuinely think they will be admitted to heaven and have devoted a whole life to fervent, zealous service, even preaching Orthodox truth, but instead they hear Jesus declare, I never knew you. I pray it will not happen to anyone here today. Don't gamble with your soul. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father. Help us all to check the foundation of our hope in heaven this morning. To examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Thank you for your grace and mercy in just giving us this solemn warning. Lest we continue in a carnally secure state until it's too late. Oh God, would you awaken some from the sleep of death today. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.